0: Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray.
1: And I'm Glenn Langenberg.
0: Well, Glenn, we've been doing this podcast thing for a little while now. We've gotten to know each other pretty well. You could say we're thick as... Mm-hmm. Thieves. No, as, as podcast co-hosts.
1: We are, we are pretty thick <laughs> like that. <laughs> like a band of brothers. Exactly. Anyway, what do you, what's the one you have for me? Well, I was thinking that sometimes it might cost an... Arm and a leg? An unusually low amount to actually contribute to Patreon.com and support the (laughs) W Podcast. I like it. Or an arm and a leg. It actually doesn't cost an arm and a leg. That's why we recommend it.
0: Not even a finger and a toe. (laughs) Mm.
1: Speaking of fingers and toes... Yes. How uh, how is your music list coming along? You uh you seem to be invoking people's interest quite a bit in, in any songs that deal with fingers, palms, hands, toes, etc.
0: I have um the, I actually got an email from a a listener. Uh I mean Cheryl uh, wrote in saying you know, she had a uh, a suggestion of uh, throwing in Sabotage by the Beastie Boys
1: um yeah i I didn't get the reference at first but i'm terrible with lyrics i really suck at lyrics you know those shows where someone starts singing and your job is to finish (laughs) i I, even though i've heard the song a million times i can never ever if you put me on the spot i will never know what the next phrase is
0: well i i'm I I mean, I just took that as just, you know, a type of crime. You know, just just the the crime of sabotage. Um, Uh, Because I had uh, had some other songs that were like that, that, you know, that didn't pertain specifically to fingers and palms and hands, but like Psycho Killer or Polly by Nirvana that just, you know, talked about different crimes or criminals. That's, maybe I was wrong because I didn't go back and listen to the, to read through all the lyrics to make sure I didn't miss something, but... That's what I took that as. It's just a song um,
1: about crime. I right, right. You know, I I should have should have used a bird's eye view. <laughs> well, that's
0: that's the old uh, like Ron Smith says. Step one is uh, take a sip of your coffee, lean back, and look at it from arm's distance before moving in to, uh, to look closer at it. No, right, she she said, you know, thanks for putting this list together. I, I should have come up with this idea years ago. And uh, it's just a good mix of music. So glad to hear that. Uh, I saw a tweet come through from Carrie Hall, another friend of the show, uh, saying that uh, the list was significantly lacking in uh, rap and hip-hop uh, music. So,
1: uh... <laughs> Well, you know what? Now that she says that, let me just go check my prodigious collection of gangster <laughs> rap and uh, uh, crunk and other uh, other such songs, and I'm sure I will find many 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 and probably I, uh, a lot of criminal references
0: well that's what i was gonna say i was like well i'm sure we could find criminal references in some of those songs but uh, it wasn't quite the, the spirit but you know we can definitely include some of those i i, I uh, put her on it to to look up some for uh for us and uh you know let her know that that my musical knowledge starts to drop off considerably around 1995.
1: So, um, all right. Tra- <laughs> Trab Called Quest is about as far as we're getting into this. There you go. Hashtag need more diversity. Which, I mean, th- there's, man, that song list
0: is pretty dang diverse, but, yeah, I uh, thought so. One of the, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm actually was going to add into tonight because I, uh, just came across it earlier today was, um, uh, they Might Be Giants has, one of their albums had a a series of like 20 short, like 10 second quote songs that were all called Fingertips. Oh. And the idea was that you would hit shuffle on the CD and as you're listening to the whole CD, the regular songs would all be kind of mixed up with these breaks in the music with a, a 5, 10, maybe 15 second mini uh hook or just a, a variety kind of mix things up so Good. i was gonna put those in there as well and same kind of thing it'll it'll wake you up if you're if you're stuck doing a whole load of comparisons and they're all exclusions and and you kind of get uh, bored with it There'll maybe maybe a little break in a, a strange 10 second they might be giant song <laughs> will uh break you out of that reverie yeah, if, if any other listeners have any other thoughts of songs involving hands, um, uh, you know, palms, fingers, ridges, uh, or just different crimes and criminals, uh, send you know those in to us. Email or tweet us, and you can uh, find the list by going to youtube.com dot slash ray forensics, clicking on the playlist button, uh, and then finding it there. Anyway, thanks to Cheryl for writing in and and everybody else who's been uh, listening and the responses we got on the CLPEX website as well. So before we move on, I wanted to mention again our uh, Patreon program. Uh, We've got all of our old episodes and uh, some extra content available to Patreon members, contributing even just a dollar a month gets you into all of that. And big thanks to Melissa and to Vincent, who are both uh, new subscribers, uh, helping us out through Patreon. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot. So I got an email in. Uh, there's this group called the California Friction Rage Study Group, or the CFRSG. Cafergate. Right. So they're a group out of California. Basically, the California DOJ helps organize this, where every month people, from starting with all people in California, but it's spread out to other people as well. Call in uh, to like, a conference call and listen to a short presentation. Get updates specifically for California people with like their statewide system. How to access stuff through NGI? Uh, just other stuff. Um, it's a great little study group that that meets, like I said, over a conference call every month. They had a little issue with hard drive failure in uh, California. And it looks like they lost some email addresses. So if you were a member of this and haven't received anything from them recently, or if you just want to join in with the California Friction Rich Study Group and, and join in their discussion every month, uh, go ahead and please send an email to uh, lori.or at doj.ca.gov. That's L-O-R-I dot O-R-R at doj.ca.gov or to Derek Morisawa, D-E-R-R-I-C-K dot M-O-R-I-S-A-W-A at doj.ca.gov. And they can get you back on the list and uh, recover from whatever unfortunate crash happened uh, uh, back there in California. Well, Glenn, uh, I'm back in Arizona this week, and um, unfortunately, I've had to turn on the air conditioner because <laughs> uh-huh. we're already past 90. But uh, anyway, how have things been back up in uh, in Minnesota? What have you been up to?
1: Well, uh, I well actually, I, I've been traveling the last couple of weeks. I was in DC and Washington, DC, and I was in Detroit and visiting some friends and such. But I, uh, when I was in DC, I I met. I, I was doing some teaching. ...for an agency there, and I met a couple of listeners who listened to the podcast. Oh, cool. So, the two things. So, a quick little shout-out to Mallory and Esther. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks again for some of your comments, and it was nice being able to uh, teach with you guys last week. But what was what I thought was pretty cool was though one of them came up to me during the break and said, This is so weird hearing you talk and not have my headphones on. I only know your voice... <laughs> Through my headphones. So this is very surreal. And I I never really Uh, thought about how... You know, you and I, some people only know us through the podcast, and yet they know True. a ton about us too. They know about our lives and this happened and this happened and that, and we work there and this. We complain about that. You've got this little quirky thing. I got this quirky thing. And it's just, it's, <laughs> uh, no, I know I have no quirky things. I, I, <laughs> it's, it's just so, it's so strange to meet people who kind of already know you. And you're just, you know, obviously meeting them for the first time, but it was it was very nice. And it, they, uh, well, anyway, shout out to to you guys, and hope hope you get a chance to listen to this episode.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. It it really is always really awesome to be able to travel to teach or to go to conferences and to meet listeners and to you know to hear from them. So it really always is fun. And um, we're both going to be in California next month. Yeah, is that right? Right. Yep, that's right. For the California State Division of the IAI. Um, actually, I wanted to mention that real quick. If you're going to the California State Division, um, I'm going to be doing a uh, a workshop there on using Gyro in Photoshop. Really excited about the the tools that I'm bringing to that class, but it does require you to bring a computer with you uh, to do the workshop. So if uh if if you're like i said already going to the conference or if you're just interested in now going now that we mentioned it now that we're letting you know that we're going to be there <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know take a look at the schedule see if uh if that workshop uh, works in with everything else that's going on that week and uh, if you want to uh to you know learn some quick ways to uh efficiently incorporate gyro into an on-screen markup uh, then make sure you bring a laptop with uh, with Photoshop installed. If you have a laptop but not Photoshop, that's fine too because you can install Photoshop as a free demo for a couple weeks uh, by going to the Adobe Photoshop uh, website.
1: You know, on that too, and uh, this will give me a chance to plug something coming up here. I will also be at that conference, and I'm t- and I'm giving a lecture and teaching a workshop with the the head of the forensic science division at the Cook County Public Defender's Office, Brendan Max. And we haven't talked about some of the things that recently came out. There was this article about Cook County, and particularly Chicago PD and the forensics there and so on. We can deal with that another time. But um, he and I are giving a lecture. We'll talk a little bit about some of those things there and more generically about some of the things I generally see as a consultant, as an independent expert when I review agencies where, where I see what I think are weaknesses that a good defense attorney could attack. And, of course, he will talk about, as a good defense attorney, exactly the kinds of things he, he will go after and why and what can be done about it. So we'll be talking about that, and then we're also doing a workshop that is a little bit of a preview for this class that I had talked about a long time ago. And we finally have the class all set. It's going to be through Ron Smith & Associates. It is going to be on on their website, so check it. By the time this airs, it'll probably be up on the website. And it's called Practical Answers for Challenging Questions in the Courtroom for Latent Print Examiners. And it's a three day class that me and Carrie Hall and Brendan Max, the attorney, are teaching, where we are setting up. Over three days, we're going to be dealing with difficult topics, difficult issues, and we – Carrie and I will take turns playing different witnesses, and sometimes we'll give good answers, sometimes we'll give bad answers, and we'll show (laughs) what the defense attorney can do with both because the message that we will keep focusing on is even when you give a good answer, he can still make some hay with it, and that's his job. But it will not be as devastating when you have really terrible answers to some of the questions. And you know some of the terrible answers are things even beyond the average examiner's you know control. You know when we get into things like some of the testing or statistics for for HB, some of the you know if an agency is accredited or not, some of those are beyond the average examiner's control. So how can they mitigate that? What can they do you know to help with that if, if anything? And sometimes sometimes there's not a whole lot they can do. Anyway, we're excited to be offering that class. It'll be in September of 2019 so that's six months from now go to the Smith and associates website and you can start registering for that it is going to sell out fast we're, we're sure of it it's going to be in the denver area i think at jefferson county which is in golden colorado it's it's going to be a, a really fun class and what we're doing in california is a uh, a little preliminary preview of, of four hours of what the class will be like so we're hoping that'll draw some interest get a little buzz and um again just like your workshop man hope uh hope these things take off i think your workshop is a great idea and i i hope people enjoy it
0: i, I put in to do the workshop also at the ii conference in reno so hopefully that gets picked up for there as well and my uh first go with it'll be just in a couple weeks at uh in, in florida uh, as a full two-day uh, version of the class. We kind of go at the opposite <laughs> doing the the uh the the actual full two day version of the class first, and then the, actually just the very next week the uh, the four hour version.
1: I find with any new class, it takes usually three runs to kind of settle in and get things down.
0: Yeah, and then actually, uh, one of the I've gotten the the tools to a place where I'm really happy with them. The the actions and and shortcuts that I'm going to be using in that class, and uh, want to do a um a demo with you or we kind of talk about it on the podcast as well so we've been oh, talking cool. about this for since like at least december but uh, haven't gotten that worked in because we've just had other topics come up to talk about sure all right uh are we ready to move into our main topic for the day then
1: no sorry we have one more thing to mention i <laughs> okay. got i got a uh, quick little text from gianni uh oh, gianni right. Ribeiro and we've had her obviously on previous episodes and she she sent a, a quick little text it was great it the the text was is it NAS report or NRC report so is it the National right. Academies of Sciences report or is is it the National Research Council report or, is, or the NAS report the NAS report it's which I hear a lot on the east coast it is not the NAS report okay. <laughs> i'm putting That's my foot down answer. <laughs> i am putting my okay. foot down on that one so uh Isn't that a
0: rapper i think i think na,
1: na, Nas. Nas, Nas. Nas. yeah Nas. okay or or i don't know <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to your query with uh so uh, I was glad she asked that I laughed when I when I read it because it was something that I actually dealt with a little bit when I was writing the thesis and have written a few papers with Christoph Champeau. he would always correct it you know he would always correct it when I would use the NAS report and put the NRC report now technically both are correct and what I told Gianni is that NAS has name recognition everybody knows that but NRC is the Technically, the more specific. If you, I don't, I don't like saying correct. It's more specific because the way the National Academies of Science is set up, you have the National Academies of Sciences, which has these different branches. You know, you've got your medical branch, you've got your engineering branch, you've got your social sciences, natural sciences, you know, whatever. And, okay. And so, within the National Academy of Sciences, this academy, which looked at forensic science and delved into that. Formed a committee. Now, whenever they form committees, these committees follow specific rules to investigate a topic. And the rules are, call, are called the rules of the National Research Council. And they have to follow these rules. And when they write a report, they have to follow the report template and the rules of the report writing, which comes from the National Research Council. And then ultimately, it's published through the publication branch, which is the National Research Council. So while the National Academies of Sciences is like the big umbrella, if you will, it's like Disney, and the National Research Council is Star Wars, if you will. It's <laughs> very specific and within We're okay. the it's within the but it's within the specific universe of the NRC, but it is still at the end of the day a Disney production. Think of them as the producers versus the directors. Got it. I'm looking at the the title page
0: of Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States, a Path Forward, Committee on Identifying the Needs of the Forensic Science Committee, National Research Council of the National Academies. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it depends on on how specific you want to get. So you're saying that, that NRC is more technically correct and NAS is a broader umbrella over that?
1: Right, I, I I don't like thinking it was correct. It's technically more specific about okay the you know the specific rules under which this report was written and and you know whereas the National Academies of Sciences, like you say, is the umbrella. I, again, I actually think that's the perfect. It's the perfect analogy. Is the NRC is the director and the NAS is the producer. When you think about movies,
0: right? Well, that makes sense, and. Uh, uh... <laughs> It, it is it is funny that uh i i see it occasionally written as nrc but i've only ever heard it discussed as nas or or on the east coast more uh NAS
1: <laughs> NAS um, <Naz> so. ghoul <laughs>
0: uh anyway no that's that's a that's a great question and thank you Gianni, for asking the question so that we can all get a little bit of <laughs> clarification uh, on this report, that's been out for almost 10 years now, so <laughs> it's funny that we've, we haven't clarified this before now, but um, no, it, it may, I get it. It makes sense. All right, so the topic today, it, it was kind of a, a big news story that hit just last week in the latent print community. So uh, this is a story of Archie Williams, uh, which came out in, um, like I said, in the news uh, so I'm going to kind of go all the way back and start this and, and do more of a narrative thing, explaining you know, everything that happened leading up to the news that uh, that hit last week. So on December 9th, 1982, in the middle of the day, uh, there was a young woman at her home in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and there was a knock at her door, on the side door. Uh, she saw a black male that she thought she recognized, and he was cl- said he was collecting clothes for the needy. She kind of got a weird feeling and tried to close the door slowly as they talked, but he pushed the door open, forced his way in. Uh, She ran to try to get out the front door, but couldn't get it unlocked in time. Uh, The man threw her to the floor, pinned her down, held a knife to her neck, uh, then forced her into a bedroom upstairs, told her to completely disrobe. He removed his own clothing and uh, raped her. The woman was face to face with her attacker and observed his features. Uh, this is all stated in in the kind of a summary uh, I found online from a um, from the appellate court decision back in the '80s. Uh, but she also noticed a scar on his shoulder. So while this is happening, uh, a family friend named uh, Stephanie Alexander arrived uh, to drop off um, the victim's young daughter. So. Mrs. Alexander had one of her kids and uh, this this other girl with her. Uh, She honked the horn, but when no one came out, she knocked on the front door. No one responded, so she went to the side door. Seeing that it was open, went inside, started walking through the house. Hearing someone's voice, the attacker stabbed the victim in the stomach and then in the chest. Uh, Mrs. Alexander is coming upstairs with the children. When she reached the top of the stairs, she came face to face, with uh, the assailant, who grabbed her, pulled her into the bedroom, threw her against the bedroom wall. The children ran and hid. Mrs. Alexander begged the assailant to, to just leave, covered her eyes, and said that, you know, I'm not looking at you. I can't describe you. Suddenly, there's another knock at the front door, and which turned out to be the mailman was knocking to deliver some certified mail, and this finally scared off the attacker who got dressed and ran off. Mrs. Alexander drove the victim to a hospital where she had surgery. And later that day, Mrs. Alexander gave a description of the assailant, which was used to make a composite drawing. Now, this is all on the the 9th. On December 15th, about a week later, while still in the hospital, the victim gave a description of her attacker. Uh, using an identikit, she made a composite drawing. So that's what's written in the Uh, like I said, in the appellate document. Uh, I'm not exactly familiar with what an identikit is or would have been in 1982 or how she made a drawing with this, but again, that's what is stated. All right, so the the drawing that the victim made uh, appeared different from the one that Mrs. Alexander had given a week earlier. And later that day, the victim was shown eight photo lineups, each consisting of six pictures of black males Uh, But she didn't identify any of them. Uh, The next day, officers returned with three more displays, and again, there was no identification. So, now, through the rest of December, officers started showing around the victim's uh, identikit composite drawing to different convicted criminals. And on January 3rd of 83, there was a man informed police that he thought the suspect was Archie Williams. So based on this information, a photo of Williams was shown to the victim as part of six photo lineups, each consisting of six photographs. Uh, the victim said that there was a person in one lineup who strongly resembled her attacker, uh, but requested to have side views of the suspects. So another lineup was put together using profile photos, but the only person repeated from the first set of a total of like 36 photos was Archie Williams now in the side views? Uh, she pointed to Williams again and said, "It looks for some. It looks look for someone who looks like him." Did not positively identify him because she said his hair was different. Now the next day, on the fourth, she was shown another lineup, including Williams with a different hairstyle, and at this point, she again, now the third time, uh, seeing him, uh, identifying him as her assailant. He was arrested, and now the next day on the 5th, there was a physical lineup conducted. Williams is the only person in the lineup that she had now seen for a fourth time, and she positively identifies Williams as her attacker. So I want you to kind of, at this point, throw in any thoughts you have on, on the investigation so far.
1: Well, um, standard practice for a lineup back then. I'm surprised it wasn't five white guys in Archie Williams. <laughs> I mean we you know we know f- yeah. historically how how bad – and uh, boy, I know I, I'm going to say this. I should probably have looked it up first. I believe the NAS actually did a report on eyewitness testimony. If they didn't, then there was this big, big scientific review of it. But I, I thought it was yeah. NAS. And then just showing how scientifically invalid and all the weird psychological things – and like you're talking about – Having seen him three times previously, she is now primed to recognize that guy of all, but it says nothing about her memory of that day. I mean, it's just, it's incredible how obvious it was, and yet it was standard practice back then. Yeah. Well, in, in reading,
0: one of the things that really took me aback was that,
1: and I guess it sounds like standard
0: procedure for 1983 when the trial was, but... Uh, in, an expert in eyewitness identification was not allowed to testify at trial. And to this day, Louisiana and Nebraska are the only two states that still do not allow eyewitness identification experts to come in and testify.
1: Interesting. The, really,
0: the only other evidence uh, against Archie Williams was uh, that uh, seminal fluid was collected from the victim and tested at the state crime lab and williams could not be excluded as uh as a contributor this is you know more in kind of like the blood typing days obviously not dna but in uh, what would what would the analysis have been called back then was it was it a, just a typing uh kind of test
1: well this is what stolero was talking about back then i mean depending exactly. on what they would have it depends on what they would have gotten out of the the semen I mean if he wasn't a secretor, they might not have gotten very much at all, but I mean they would have been pretty pretty limited if he wasn't a secretor
0: so well, here now starts the evidence in favor of uh, Archie Williams because again that's that's about it uh for the evidence against him mrs alexander the now the the neighbor that came by and also saw him also viewed that physical lineup, and but she identified a different person uh, from that lineup. In trial, she identified Williams in the courtroom, but said that when she was you know, looking at the lineup, she was not absolutely certain about her identification, and that she kind of picked one almost at random because they all looked about the same. Defense wanted the recorded statements of what she said during that lineup, but uh, those were withheld from defense. And when defense wanted to recall Mrs. Alexander later on in trial for additional questions, uh, the court would not grant a recess that, um, until she was made available. Uh, so she never. The defense didn't get a chance to call her back uh, to the stand. So the uh, the victim was uh, five foot seven, and initially described the attacker as being taller than her, about five nine to five eleven. Mrs. Alexander, who was five four but wearing three inch heels, also described the man as taller. Archie Williams is five foot four. Now this is uh Kevin Hart, Joe Pesci kind of height, like yeah. you, know, you know you know often uh, Kevin Hart gets made fun of, right? Yeah. For, from his height. So you know, noticeably shorter uh than the uh the average guy. And uh the victim described a, a scar on his clavicle. Archie Williams was found to have a scar in his upper arm. In the court, this was used as, from prosecution as, oh, see, she identified the right scar. Defense said, oh, no, it's in a different place than what she said, where she said it should be. The identity of the informant that you know, named, hey, this looks like Archie Williams, uh, was never named for defense to interview. Uh, was never called in to testify about recognizing him from the composite photo. Uh, Archie Williams had alibis. His mother, sister, and a family friend also said that he was home asleep at the time of the attack. And there were several latent prints found at the scene near blood uh, stains from the attack. And those fingerprints did not match Williams or the victim or her husband. And uh, the original defense attorney, Kathleen Ritchie, brought this up in trial, singing, saying fingerprints don't lie. It would be a travesty and a danger to convict the wrong man. The real rapist will laugh at the judicial system and terrorize other innocent women in their homes during the day. But he was convicted.
1: And and so in, in 83... Yes. Would they have had access to APHIS?
0: Um, I'm thinking no. I mean, because we were talking about... Yeah. When California, basically one of the first APHISes to come in, that was 85 with the, um, the Night Stalker case... Uh, And I can't imagine Louisiana having one, you know, two years prior to that. Uh, So yeah, it was just, it was compared. There's also some notes that uh, a, some handymen that were, had done some work in the house recently were also printed and compared and uh, also excluded from these latent prints. Hmm. Uh, But that was not really described uh, or made available to defense that this was done. And in court, They're saying, oh, it doesn't matter that these fingerprints weren't identified. They could have belonged to anybody, including like a handyman that came by. Right. I didn't really get clear, but it sounds like they actually tested those guys. The fingerprints didn't match them as well. Hmm. There was an appeal almost right away, but the Louisiana court uh, rejected it in 1985. Uh, The Innocence Project took up his case in 1996 to try to get DNA from the rape kit tested Uh, But Louisiana didn't even have a law available allowing for this to occur until 2001, and prosecutors opposed the DNA testing. (laughs) Okay. It wasn't until 2007 that a Louisiana appeals court finally ruled that Williams could have the DNA tested, and it wasn't until 2009 that the DNA actually was tested and matched to the victim's husband. So now... There's, you know, this DNA doesn't match Archie Williams, but uh, the victim, uh, you know, had had sex with her husband the night before. So this doesn't show that it was somebody else. It still could have been Archie Williams. The DNA, essentially, since it didn't implicate somebody else, it wasn't enough to exonerate Archie Williams. Even going back to 1999, though, the Innocence Project was requesting that the latent prints be searched through iAFIS. And prosecutors refused the whole time. Finally, in 2009, when that DNA test was run, uh, unbeknownst to the defense, though, the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab ran the latent prints through IAfis, but didn't find any matches. And uh, finally, last month, in February, um, Commissioner Kanasi Kimball of the 19th Judicial District Court in Louisiana said that the court... Would make sure that every possibility would be explored regarding the truth in this case. So finally, the state agreed to search latent prints through NGI. And on March fourteenth, twenty nineteen, so this is like two weeks ago, experts from Ron Smith and Associates, in conjunction with the Louisiana Crime Lab, ran the prints, and they got a hit. They identified Stephen Forbes, a man who was arrested during an attempted rape in nineteen eighty six. He later then confessed to four other rapes in 1985 and 1986, just like the defense attorney had, had feared from the trial. Uh, he suffered from mental illness and died in prison in 1996. On March 21st, Commissioner Kimball vacated Archie Williams' conviction and he was released. Uh, District Attorney Hilar Moore said to Williams in court as a representative of the state, I apologize. Arch Williams now says... God does not let me hold grudges against anyone. He wants to lay back, soak it all in, and go to college.
1: Wow. All right. Well, a, a, a couple a couple of questions for you. Yeah. Now you said it was run by the Louisiana State Police there in Baton Rouge in uh, a few years ago in in two thousand nine. Yeah. Two thousand nine in, in Iapus, and it didn't hit. That's
0: that's what. Uh, yeah, that's what is is being reported.
1: Yeah. That's that's but strange to me because he would have been in the system. Yep. For felony rape, obviously, should have been in the system probably multiple times. That's very surprising. I mean, it, you know, I without knowing what the prints look like, that's that's interesting. That it was searched, they did what they they could have, but man, ten years ago seems like it should have hit.
0: It was still pretty good. I mean, granted, yes, NGI has does have better matchers than IAFIS did. Uh, which the switchover was about 2014,
1: but well, that's really—I mean, it's really unfortunate. You know, Louisiana did what they could to try—you know—try to answer that question ten years ago, but for whatever reason, right, it, it didn't come up. Um, so, I mean, and it—it
0: it sounds like—I mean, I'm maybe reading a little bit into this, but it sounds a little bit like the late print examiners at the state crime lab, kind of—you know—just seeing all this all these motions and everything about the DNA. We're just like, all right, well, let's put the, uh, the latent and and, and see what happens. And that may not have even, I don't know. It may or may not have been at the request of state prosecutors, but at that time, defense never knew until much more recently that those prints had been run back in 2009.
1: Hmm. Well, I'm frankly, it's a good thing they didn't because if defense <laughs> did, they might've gone, well, we already tried this. Why right. why why rerun it?
0: Well part of what they were what they were arguing for was that NGI is better than IAFIS so Oh good. Let's let's use the the newest and best system. And it sounds like the state had was just the the prosecutors were just stonewalling everything for twenty plus years. Yeah. Until finally this commissioner said, we're gonna do everything. And then so the, the prosecutor finally said, "Okay, well I guess we'll finally decide to cooperate."
1: Yeah, this was something that came up a, a question on CL that I attempted to answer and now it's probably a good time to talk about as good as any. Yeah. So one of the questions is, you know, yeah, how does this work? You know, post-conviction or when defense wants to run something through APHIS and so forth. As as a private consultant who works defense cases predominantly now, I would love the opportunity to chat about this a little bit. And my experience, and I've had a few different experiences with exactly these kinds of questions. All right. So typically, uh, well, the, the first thing, first thing, let's get this out of the way is that no private entity has access to APHIS, the, the criminal databases. So Ron Smith and Associates can't run things through databases, which is a shame because they get top-secret clearance you know, to work at FBI and these other agencies. <laughs> right. And it would be great for them to be able to run latents from their lab down in Mississippi. But no, they'll have to fly a consultant all the way up to rural Montana to sit at a terminal to run things through an APHIS system. I, I, I hate when rules rules that we make up not some space overlord that has come down and decreed these <laughs> things but rules that we are in control of have you know no exceptions you know zero tolerance that kind of thing when there's a clear acceptance or a clear instance of it would make sense to allow someone to go through certain hoops to get access to those terminals but unfortunately private entities can't and I would love access to it too because I have clients all the time asking if I can run things through, through these databases and as again as long as they follow the same rules as the state did what would be the problem but all right that aside so often in these kinds of cases when someone wants these prints run <laughs> laboratories typically especially credit laboratories have this policy that you often or the, the evidence must come from law enforcement. Typically, it must be a law enforcement submitter. Maybe there are other laboratories that have a few exceptions, but it almost always has to come from a law enforcement agency to a publicly funded crime lab, in which case you need almost always the prosecutor to be on board with. Yeah, let's run these through APHIS. And and that's why I'm saying this my experience has been it's usually the prosecutor who first stonewalls every step. Yep. And they will usually say things like, well, you know, we're not going to go on a fishing expedition for defense. Why would I dilute water down my case and introduce you know names and all these people that have nothing to do with it just so that you can muddy the waters here as opposed to, you know, defense's argument is it wasn't, it wasn't our client. It really was someone else. We're trying to do what you guys didn't do. Let's go forward and then the labs that they want these run are kind of complicit in this you know they've got these policies and they often take the approach well you know we'd love to but our hands are tied yeah even though our policies say at the discretion of the lab director and you know under certain circumstances we might be able to sorry we can't and so they often just take a position we're not going to and this requires me and the defense attorney often post conviction to appeal to the court and say here's an affidavit i looked at these prints these three could have been run through IAFIS or ngi but back in the day weren't or you know it didn't exist at the time or they're palm prints at the scene right next to the body there wasn't a palm print database we have that now please run through ngi and we have to beg the court to sign off on these affidavits and get a court order to run them A handful of times we've had agencies that will run prints just because we nicely ask them. But that is really the exception. And uh, a couple of people talked about their experiences. It's great when labs go, yeah, you know, that's a reasonable request. You know, this only comes up once in a blue moon. We'll run that for you. But a lot of agencies just don't seem to want to do it until there's a court order forcing them to. And it really is a, a frustrating thing I've run into in a number of cases that... We had had pretty reasonable requests to look at unsearched or unidentified latent prints in that case.
0: Yeah, you know, from from my experience, it, I think in general the actual latent print examiners at the crime labs seem, for the most part, to be totally willing to to run these kind of searches. I mean, this this is what they like. <laughs> You know, searching, comparing fingerprints is what they like to do. You know, it's it's what they do all the time. And the vast majority of the time, it's only a couple minutes work. I mean, like this case here, I think there are like seven
1: latents. Yeah, right. Exactly. If they're 50 or 60 versus seven prints, it's not it's not that bad.
0: I, I can just imagine, I'm not sure if Ron was there personally or, or one of his employees uh, was there, you know, in the lab with the, the state police, uh, you know, running the the sample together, which is from what I was reading, what, what happened here. And also there's a hit and, you know, after all these years, you know, over 30 years in prison, it comes down to a test that took all the 10, 15 minutes to, to enter in and and review and likely was the top candidate. So all of a sudden, Oh, there's a hit. What's this guy's name? Boy, never heard of this guy before. What was he arrested for back in the day? Oh, a sexual assault! Hey, look at that! I mean, it, it must have been just a mind-blowing experience being in the the APHIS room that day, where just a couple hours' work completely changes thirty-plus years of of uh, mistakes and totally changes this guy's life. I, it, it's just an amazing uh, story, and um, so, like I was saying. Uh, I think in general, the print examiners themselves are fully you know, willing and obviously able to do this, but you're right. It, it comes down to a lab policy where you know, the request has to come from this certain line, and if um, defense requests it and prosecution agrees, then that's super easy to move forward, but if they don't, then the actual analyst, like you're saying, is kind of stuck in the middle of going, well... You know, my agency just won't let me do this thing. It's only going to take a couple of minutes and it it may mean everything, you know. I don't know. It's sad it took this long and that there were so many, you know, clear mistakes at the time back in the 80s that uh, led to this. Uh, one of the big things in these news articles is the, the Innocence Project members and uh, attorneys saying that there should be a a statute allowing for defense to have access in some way uh, to do these searches.
1: Yeah. I, I And I would support and agree that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It, it's, there really is important evidence, you know, available that should be available to the defense. It, like in this case, come to the obvious conclusion that it was this other guy it's sad that it just took this long to get there
1: yeah indeed but you mentioned the innocence project i'm you know i know that this is one of a thousand cases the other 999 didn't go anywhere and this is you know one that did and you know these these are great stories and i give them a lot of credit for their work yeah and I I saw a photo in the paper. I don't know if you saw the same photo, but it it looked like there were some Innocence Project attorneys there. Did, did you see the photo with him being released, where he's wearing the the cap? It looks like a kind of like a you know he's wearing a little like a purple Durag cap. kind of thing.
0: Um, I'd have to look it back up. I don't have those pages in front of me oh, right now.
1: All right. Well, it looked like Barry Sheck was there, and I thought I saw Laura Nyrider to the the left, but.
0: Oh. <laughs> your 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 crush from the uh making a murderer case?
1: Yeah, yeah. I thought uh, I thought she uh thought that was her in the photo too, but it didn't say who was there. But it looked like looked like okay. Barry and it looked like Laura, but just I was curious if she was involved because that makes me want to do more cases.
0: I mean, the Innocence Project dates back to the mid-90s, right?
1: A little bit later than that. I think the first exoneration might have been 99 or 2000, 2001 somewhere. Oh, maybe a little bit later uh, it, it might actually be later in the early 2000s cuz it really was okay. after STR DNA was established right because the DQ the DQ alpha DNA in the mid to late 90s wasn't discriminating enough it was when STRs became sort of in vogue so i'm going to i'm going to probably guess it's close to the 2003
0: but i mean i got to think that he, you know uh, archie williams has been one of their longest clients uh, with initially contacting the group in 96 um, it, it's, uh, I don't know, quite a win to finally keep on it long enough you know, for this to come through. Yeah. Um, but it's also good to, to, uh, you know, to hear, uh, Williams, some of his words after getting out, um, you know, hopefully, you know, he can go through and it, it's not too hard to get some of that funding available to the wrongly, wrongfully convicted, uh, we talked a little bit about that with the banana Dandridge case and how he was having some problems down in Alabama before he passed away. Uh, so hopefully his process now that he's out goes pretty smoothly uh, with whatever is available uh, in Louisiana. You know, it's it's good to hear you know saying that he's not holding grudges. He just I, you know, he I, wants I, to
1: go to college. I, I don't get that. I mean, I would be I would be so the opposite. And these guys are always angels and saints when they come out and they're, you know, you know, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to move on. And, and I, I can't imagine being in that situation, but I don't feel that I would be so quickly forgiving. I'd be a pretty angry man at that point. <laughs> I'd be like, heads are going to roll on this.
0: It it, it it may be just the way to survive, you know, no, that, yeah, uh, that maybe having, having to hold that anger for 35 years is, uh, you know, you may not make it out if you if if that's how you're feeling this entire time if sure you know I'm assuming at some point you have to come to terms with the mistake while you're still in there, and uh you know not not that it means giving up, but I can't even imagine no i i, I get it i get, <laughs> i get it, but it's in a world now where every little thing is just you know harped on as the worst possible thing. You know, and people being offended over just the silliest things. This obviously is something to be to hold a grudge about, right? Actual outrage, right? And you know, to kind of hear that—not uh, that he's going to you know give up on on uh, getting the the compensation for the wrongful imprisonment, but which is obviously he's due. But to come out going, all right, you know what? Let's let's move on and yeah, see what what I can do in college see what I can do about getting my life back back on track uh even though he's had more time in prison than than uh than he had before he went in
1: a little bit of advice to Mr. Williams if you see some garbage on the freeway don't stop and pick it up oh. don't move it just leave it let it go just just let just let the DMV take care of it that they, they'll take care of it
0: yeah that's uh, if if you uh, haven't been listening long enough, that was a reference to Benia Dandridge, who seemed like he was uh, who was also wrongfully convicted, and fingerprint evidence released him a couple years ago. And uh, on the way back from visiting his mom, stopped on the side of the highway to get some some uh, trash out of the out of the road, like just being a good citizen, and got hit by a car and killed about a year after being released. Uh, after almost twenty years in prison, so yeah,
1: just let that crap go. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, no, hopefully, in that tr- situation, just so tragic all around. Hopefully, here, Mister Williams has, uh, you know, many long years ahead of him uh, to uh, to make up for all the years that were taken away from him.
1: Yeah one one thing I'll say too, and this you know this is something that I think listeners really should consider: these innocence projects. Sorry, these innocence projects groups have chapters within various states and areas and so if your lab will allow you and not all labs will allow their people to but if your lab will allow it it's really a worthwhile endeavor to reach out to them and say hey I'm a forensic expert. This is my discipline. I'd be happy to volunteer some time looking at cases for you any pro bono work. Just let me know if you need a fingerprint expert to take a look at some stuff. A lot of times you won't be able to look at cases in your own jurisdiction, but you might be able to reach out to an innocent chapter in the neighboring state or neighboring jurisdiction. And I, you know, it's how I first got started in some of these in some of these kinds of cases. It's been very fulfilling. I've worked now with the Innocence Project for almost 16 years, and any opportunity I can to either go to their event, donate, donate my time, I mean, that's that's really the big thing, just donating your, your time and expertise, they really can use that, because all they have are these law school students who don't know anything about forensics, anything about science. <laughs> I really, no, it really is a sad, if you walk into one of their, their little clinic rooms when they're working on these cases, they don't, they have no idea what they're doing, and just someone with basic forensics sitting there could kind of help them a little bit and that that would go a long way and again it, i found it to be very fulfilling in is it yeah in a few weeks i'm actually going down to the national innocence project meeting they they have an annual meeting and i'll be down there on a panel and i'll tell listeners all about it and looking forward to it maybe mr williams will be there I'll see if hey, I can that'd be great. try to meet him. But yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a it'll, it's a really cool event where all the attorneys and the some of the exonerees come. They have a big banquet and big dinner where some of the exonerees speak. And we'll we'll see. I'll I'll, I'll let you guys know what I what I what I see in here this year.
0: Look for the uh, the short Kevin Hart sized guy.
1: I will now that I know that I will look right for him. Oh oh, oh. bad taste to say. God, I I thought you're going to be taller. Okay, so... Too soon? Maybe.
0: I, I... <laughs> so, Glenn and I have both worked in, in the forensics field for police agencies for a long time. So, anyone who somehow just came across our channel, and this is the first episode they listened to, oh, please understand <laughs> that, that we, we deal with, with terrible, unfortunate
1: circumstances with humor a lot of the times. <laughs> they have to be professional forensics. They know about the black humor.
0: Okay, good. Just just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, you know, on the other hand, yes, absolutely if uh, if you like me just feel the sense of just of I don't know, I just feel awful when I hear about these stories, yeah. especially ones that could have been corrected years ago uh if uh, if someone, you know, in our field got involved sooner. I definitely encourage uh, forensic scientists, latent print examiners, to see what they can do in uh, in innocence project groups. But also, if uh, if you're a lawyer doing work, doing post conviction work, you know, for actual money or uh, for pro bono with the Innocence Project, reach out to a latent print examiner. I mean, obviously Ron Smith, you know, with with this case and the Benia Dandridge case you know has um has done a lot of work with groups like this there was uh, kathleen bright uh a few years ago uh, was the expert that found the error in the uh Lana Kanan case out of uh indiana um find a latent print examiner you know there's there's there, there's a bunch of us out there and uh you know we'll we'll take a look especially just you know initial co- consultation or I don't know, whatever it is that you need, if somehow a latent print examiner can help uh, in a case where someone has been wrongfully convicted and imprisoned for you know a long time, man, there's there's a lot of us out there that would be happy to help in whatever way we can to get down to the truth of the matter.
1: All right, so now I'm going to ask you a slightly provocative, poke at you a little bit question. I mean I know you're a big proponent and you, you know, back in your agency used to, of course, you know, make an identification, move on, report out their other latents but not analyzed at this time. How do you think that this sort of one identification we're going to report it and move on, how do you think that the, the lack of doing additional examinations factors into all of this? How do you reconcile those two? That's a good question. So – How do you sleep at night, sir <laughs> – <laughs> so, in, in, in when I was, uh, again, this
0: is when I was at a police agency, most of the time, yes, if there was one ID, then, you know, it'd stop and, and write up the report. Now, most of the time when it ended up going to court, then a lot of the time, not all, but most of the time in those circumstances, the rest of the latents were compared. That's part of it. You know, if that's the case, I don't know. I guess there's still the the chance that faced with a single identification, a guy takes a plea deal, uh, even when he didn't do it. But I don't know there there, there is a point where you know, you have to kind of rely on the the rest of the system working to when someone truly is innocent. Then they you know they go to trial, even though know, that obviously is riskier. Uh, we you know we all know that. And that the additional comparisons go forward and, and, and hopefully you know, find out what actually happened. So in this case, it was – I mean there was no single ID yeah. before moving on. It was a series of exclusions to the suspect, to the victim, uh, the victim's husband, maybe even other people with legitimate access to the house. So,
1: Yeah, if this case doesn't qualify for that scenario, you would have just run them as a matter of course.
0: Right, right. And and gone through gone through all of them.
1: So, so if I if I hear you correctly that most of your cases if they actually are contested the additional work will be done anyway, but like right. you say if it pleads out or you know they're facing what looks like just uh insurmountable kind of case against them, yes, there's that risk, but it's balanced by the need to get information out to the officers and it's just it's a yeah, there's always that potential, but it's the risk in light of doing what exactly. you can with your limited resources, which, you know, it's not – as long as we don't promote it as a fail-safe system, an absolute system that will always get these things correct, which is why I think we need to I – th- I think it's good to teach examiners at a very early age in their training the system doesn't get it right all the time and that we always should be on guard for opportunities to listen to the potential, the fact that we don't always get it right all the time.
0: Absolutely. I, I think that especially in, in that person-to-person interaction, when you've reached a conclusion, uh, that also needs to be there. Going back to the uh, um, uh, the Brandon Mayfield case, where when the FBI was con- you know confronted by the Spanish National Police saying, we don't think it's him they weren't really ready to listen to that perspective at the time. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's right, right down to the examiner on a person-to-person basis. So being willing to hear what someone with an opposing viewpoint on a conclusion has. You know, also in court, you know, um, you know, you, you're you just bringing in your little piece of the pie and, and are the fingerprint can rarely answer, you know, justifiable homicide or any other things like that. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, like you're saying, we kind of do – we don't have the resources for so much. So, you know, if we make one ID and then quit, heck, there could be DNA and, you know, a whole room full of eyewitnesses and video and all this other stuff where, well, we don't know. But, you know, continuing on doing even more work isn't going to add any more to the case. He's probably going to plead out because the well, the evidence is so overwhelming versus one idea and we quit and that's the only evidence in the case. Yeah. Hopefully that's a case where defense actually goes to trial and uh, prosecution requests the rest of the comparisons to be done. And uh you know, we, we kinda go from there. But, you know, our little closed off, walled off, curtained off area, you know, a lot of times we can we we can start we I think we should start with certain amount of a certain level of examination continue to a logical point uh, and then provide what information we have to contribute and kind of see if things come back to us with more needed or not
1: yeah well said
0: well that's uh that's our little story here about archie williams um if anyone has more information than what i could just glean from doing my little google searches you know, please uh, please contact us and let us know if there's more to the story that we need to fill in. Hopefully at some point we can, like we did with the uh, Benaiah Dandridge case, we did like an initial episode about it and then followed up, you know, months later with um, Matt Marvin from uh, RSNA.
1: Yeah, he's he's going to be at the Instance Project too, and we're on a panel together. So I'll, Great. I'll tap on the shoulder and see if there's anything else. Maybe by then he'll listen to this episode and we can see yeah. if – anything that we left out or got wrong that they can help us with
0: absolutely you know, love to hear that perspective again and and if he or ron or whoever was in that room like i was saying when that hit came up i mean that's can you imagine that i mean there's there's you know finding a, nor- a hit normally in Aphis is like a, ooh, a little shot of adrenaline and you know it feels feels cool to you know find the hit but in that situation i mean i gotta know feel that they, that it was just I don't know, just an electric moment uh, in that uh, in front of that APHIS terminal. So, um, all right. Well, if you have any things like that, uh, email us, eric at rayforensics.com or to glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. I uh, mentioned a little bit earlier at the beginning of the show about the California Division Conference coming up, but I also want to throw out, I have it up on my website now, rayforensics.com, a class in Boise, Idaho, actually just outside Boise in Meridian, Idaho the exclusionology class. Uh, so you can go to rayforensicscom if you're interested in attending that. And it's going to be May 13th to the 15th. Uh, so looking forward to, uh, I don't know, having some potatoes and French fries and I don't know, <laughs> mashed potatoes, all sorts of, uh, potatoey goodness, uh, up in Idaho. Uh, anything else you wanted to, uh, to pl- plug before we go, Glenn?
1: Well, uh, again, I'll just tell, remind listeners, go check out this new class at ronsmithandassociates.com practical answers to challenging questions in the courtroom for the latent print examiner I'm very excited about it and I, I do think it will it will fill quickly so get your requests in now for travel and wow uh, Colorado in the fall perfect time to be there gorgeous beautiful location come come crack a few Rocky Mountain brews with us oh yeah that sounds, uh, that sounds like a great time
0: so we have our 200th episode coming up here soon and just a couple more. So uh, for all you long-time listeners or new-time listeners, uh, we want to hear from you. Please either email us, tweet at us, or call us at 602-935-6425. You can leave a voicemail saying uh, that you love the show or like <laughs> Glenn keeps insisting. She don't like the show. Whatever <laughs> feedback you want to leave us. Um, but uh, we want to, get to just do a collection of, uh, of listeners to play back or read back uh, to you guys when we do our 200th episode. Uh, so especially if you have some good memories of, of things that made you laugh or think or uh, that you always go back to to help you out preparing for trial or anything like that, uh, definitely want you to let us know. That's a 602-935-6425. It's so 602-935-6425. Uh, the Twitter is at double pod. The opinions expressed are those of us and not of anybody else. So with that, uh, talk to you guys later.
1: Bye, everybody. Have a
0: good week.